0: All right, our scripture, we come in our scripture today to the second chapter of Paul's letter to Titus. Our sermon text is the first two verses of Titus chapter 2, but to get a a running start on this topic of old men, let's see one small verse of the Old Testament that gives gives us or expands our our view of God's view of old men and old women of old age. It is not something to be dreaded. It is not something to be feared. Leviticus 19 verse 32 reads this. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. We turn now to our sermon text in the second chapter of Paul's letter to Titus. The apostle is writing to Titus, his colleague, whom he has left on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean to finish what had been begun there in terms of gospel proclamation and the second reason to appoint elders in every city on the island of Crete, just as Paul had commanded Timothy before they parted company. He has described the... baleful effect of sin on men, particularly it seems on the island of Crete. And then he says in chapter 2, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, Sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ really isn't a complicated business to understand. And because regeneration, is the work of the Holy Spirit acting on the sinner, it's not even a hard thing for the elect sinner to do. It is, in fact, an irresistible grace. It is as irresistible as childbirth. In, the chi- in childbirth, of course, it's the mother who goes to the bother of conceiving and carrying and laboring, who goes through the morning sickness and the swelling and the backaches and everything else. It's the mother who goes through those things, and then the child in due time is simply born without anyone's consulting him about it. It's the Holy Spirit who labors with you, the sinner, who effectually calls you by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who persuades you of the all-sufficient atonement made for you at the cross, and there is literally nothing else for you to do in the matter but believe and love and cling to him who, without your aid, brought your new birth to pass. You, the new Christian, are a babe laid lovingly on his mother's breast as the angels in heaven rejoice. It is as simple and beautiful a process as that for the sinner to come to faith in Christ. The Christian faith the Christian life is profoundly simple in its beginnings, but it is absolutely comprehensive in its scope. Something is dreadfully wrong with the baby who, once born, fails to thrive, fails to grow, and so it is with the Christian. There follows the new birth a collaborative moral Growth that we call sanctification, growth in grace, growth growth that takes the newborn Christian all the way to full maturity in Jesus Christ, all the way to spiritual maturity to the measure of the fullness that belongs to the stature. Of Christ, I call this growth collaborative because you, the Christian, do have an important part to play in it together with the Holy Spirit. He offers you the means of grace and you take them and you make use of them. Biblical doctrine, prayer, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and we ignore these means of grace or we take them for granted at the extreme peril of our life and health as Christians. How many weak, pale, anorexic, professing Christians do you know who seem to pass their lives, pass the years of their life, in the throes of a perpetual spiritual adolescence? people who never seem to get beyond that. The tantrums they throw, tantrums against the Lord and his providence, or the apathy, or the sullen rebellion of children who never grow up actually to be someone for Christ and his church. And their failure to thrive is evident in the way they speak and the things they worry about and things they don't worry about, the things they, the way they act or fail to act, the things they're sure about, the things they doubt. It's evident in the condition of their relationships, the quality of their work, the quality of their Sabbath keeping, the quality of their forgiveness of others. And if we were willing to do a friend's part, we'd have to take them aside privately, perhaps as a brother or a sister in Christ, and say to them, Janie, you know I love you as a sister, but if it weren't for the profession of faith that you made before the congregation two or three years ago, I wouldn't be able to pick you out of a room full of pagans. Or, Jimmy, you know that I care for you, but the fact is that I can't see the signature of Jesus Christ in your life. Where's the difference that he makes? What's going on with you that you seem to be the man that you always were? These are professing Christians who have failed to thrive, failed to make progress. Now let me make this caveat, lest you misunderstand what I'm saying. One of the glorious things about the kingdom of God is that God has elected a veritable flower garden of diverse people to serve him. Our interests and our talents and our personalities are by no stretch of the imagination in lockstep conformity with one another. There's a seat at the table of the Lord for chess players and for hockey players. Scholars and skydivers, janitors, physicians, hawks, doves, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. And it's no small miracle that God calls us into one body to live together in peace and love and holiness for the praise of his glorious grace. What brings and keeps us together as the church isn't any commonly held earthly interests or natural talents or preference for suits and coats and dresses and so forth. It's the spirits transforming and harmonizing us into one body through the application of sound biblical doctrine to our lives. And this doctrine, as we learn it and begin to speak and live it, it yields results that you can actually see. Lovely results. Real results. Because the gospel, after all, isn't just another philosophy of life. The gospel is life It's a wellspring of life. The gospel is that light of the eyes that gladdens the heart, the good news that puts fat on the bones, as the Proverbs reminds us in chapter 15. The gospel does that. The apostle Peter, quoting from several places in the Old Testament, calls the church a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And dear friends, we don't get into that marvelous light by nature. If we get there at all, we get there by grace. The grace of sound doctrine supernaturally applied from God's standpoint, and from our standpoint, gobbled down hungrily into the thirsty, hungry sinner's soul. The first chapter of this letter, Paul's letter to Titus, the first chapter shows us what an awful job Titus had ahead of him. It's a job that Anyone who doesn't understand the power and transforming love of Jesus Christ for his church must have considered mission impossible. Paul had left Titus in Crete with the task of setting in order the things that remain, those new church planting efforts going on there on the island, which means, in part, finding and appointing qualified elders to teach and lead the church in every city. That was Titus's mission. But look what he had to work with. Look at the whole Cretan culture. This is a land morally shipwrecked. It is a land ethically bankrupt. Crete has this prevailing cultural ethos notorious throughout the Roman Empire for deception, notorious for laziness. They were known to be a people of words, not deeds. So where are you going to find the kind of leaders the church needs in a culture like that? Where are you going to find men of truth, men of action? One of their own poets, Epimenides, a Cretan himself, says, and said 600 years before Paul came along, said Cretans are all liars, evil snakes, lazy bellies. And Paul tells Titus, you know, the man was right. The Cretan national character is a disgrace. And Titus, you're the man with the job of changing it changing the culture, one man at a time. And you're going to do this by the power of Christian reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That's where your elders are going to come from. That's where your pastors are going to come from. Pastors and elders aren't born that way. They are made that way through the preaching of the gospel and the breaking of the natural heart and the application of sound doctrine elders are made I wonder what you look for in the men who lead you what do you look for in Your Christian husbands, your Christian fathers, your Christian elders. What do you look for? They they are not the product simply of a more refined human nature than their peers. These men, whatever office they hold, they're products of supernature men possessed of the Holy Spirit, men who are in the grip of the transforming God. And Paul is saying, you won't find these men anywhere, Titus. You won't find them in Crete. You won't find them in this world. You won't just happen across them. You're going to have to fashion them yourself with the help of God's holy spirit and by the application of sound doctrine in your preaching but here's the positive note once you have done that then these men in their time are going to fashion the lives of others for Christ. That's how elders influence the church, whether ruling or teaching elders, whether formally from the pulpit or informally along life's way, we speak the things fitting for sound doctrine. Because if the church is, to use Peter's words, a chosen race, if it is a holy nation, then we too, the church, We have a national character. And it's different from the Cretan character. The church has a national character. A character regal, priestly, set apart for Christ. Christ is the ethical wellspring from which every citizen of this holy nation Drinks And our shepherds, who are carefully chosen and trained of heaven, our shepherds lead us there, to him, to that wellspring of life, to become that kind of people. The church is one church, one body, one Lord, together fighting, one holy fight in this present evil age. At the same time, when we think of the unity of the church with all of these blessings and calling, it's obvious that the church is built up of many different kinds of people, many different groups of people. And lending a careful ear to sound biblical doctrine is going to make each one of us within our groups, within our demographic groups, better at what we do in the church. Every group has a contribution to make to the life and health of the body. Virtually all the rest of this short letter is ethical instruction for Christians in view of the fact that the grace of God has appeared to all kinds of men. And that word at the end of verse 11, here in chapter 2, is anthropois. Men considered not as a gender, but as A human race, the grace of God has appeared to all kinds of people. As a fallen human race, we are all together, some seven billion of us, we're all in our common need for a salvation that God has made known in Christ. As a chosen race and a holy nation of considerably fewer numbers than seven billion, we're altogether in our having been set apart from the common life of the seven billion to the uncommon life of Christian holiness. But still, we, the church, whether in Crete or in San Antonio, We come from all sorts of people and the gospel sanctifies and beautifies these distinctions among us without erasing them. So, for example, if you are a woman here today, if you're a woman, I hope you're glad to be a woman. I hope you wouldn't ever want to be anything else because that's what God, who loves you and makes no mistakes, That's what he wants you to be for his glory. Be a woman. Whether you're young, or whether you're old, or whether you're somewhere in between, be all the woman you can be for the glory of God who made you a woman. If you're a young man, I hope you love these fleeting days of young manhood. Make use of the advantages that are yours as a young man. And yet at the same time, I hope you're studying hard to become a wise and glorious old man someday. Because that day's right around the next corner. Just wait and see. Paul now at verse 2 starts considering the desired impact of sound doctrine on these various groups of people within the church. He starts with specific groups in verses 2 through 10, and then beginning with verse 11, he moves on to the general ethical imperatives that sound doctrine cultivates across the board in the church. He starts, though, with this group. He starts with old men in the church, Not older men, as the NASB and the NIV have it, but old or aged men, as the authorized version translates. What Paul is using is the positive degree of age, nothing more. In other words, there's no comparative sense. There is no comparative suffix on the Greek word used here. He's just talking about old men which was somewhat startling to me as I read it. Because it implies that the day will come if God so blesses that I will not only be an older man than I am now, the day is going to come when I am actually and positively and absolutely old. Maybe that's a surprise to you because you thought I was positively old already. And that's okay. That's okay if you thought that of me because as I look at the virtues of old men in verse 2, I say what a wonderful thing to aspire to. If I, by the grace of God, become these things that are written in verse 2, then I'm prepared to be an old man in the absolute sense. To be Temperate. Dignified. Sensible. Sound. And that word sound means healthy. We get our word hygienic from the Greek word Paul uses here. Healthy in faith. Healthy in love. Healthy in endurance. You and I probably know a lot of old people who are no longer healthy in these things, faith and love and endurance. But if this is what I can be when I'm an old man in Christ, I say, sign me up for it. What a wonderful thing to grow old this way, through sound doctrine, growing ever closer to the Christ of Scripture and ever closer and more useful and more beloved to the people of Christ. Why do you suppose it is that Paul starts his list of the various groups in the church? Why does he begin his list with the effect of sound doctrine on old men? Well, let me hazard the opinion that today old men are maybe the most marginalized, neglected demographic people in American churches old men. The emphasis today in the American church falls on programs for the women and the children and not necessarily in that order. As long as the church has a strong, well-attended Christian ed program for the kids, the eyes of many, everything else in the church can pretty much go by the boards. And if the church offers vital support and service opportunities for women to help other women, how much better still? As for young men, we'll fit them into the college and career group. All the better, after all, to keep the sons of God from mingling with the daughters of men on the weekends. But where does the American church keep their old men? Well, I don't pretend to be able to answer that except to say that by the grace of God, Reformed and Presbyterian churches seem generally to do a better job of exercising them than many other churches do. And for that, we can give thanks in Reformed and Presbyterian churches. Old men are being put to use and using their gifts. But why does Paul begin with the sought-after effect of sound biblical doctrine on old men? Let me suggest some possibilities. First of all, as a Christian man himself, Paul is sensitive to the honor that's intrinsic to advanced age. Now, the unbelieving world around us doesn't see this or acknowledge it. The unbelieving world around us seems to take a peculiar, perverse joy in lampooning old age and its frailties. The unbelieving world around us is blind to the experience, the skills, the knowledge, the wisdom, the manners, the customs, the courtesies, the courage, the sense of perspective, and all the other advantages that belong to a man who has walked many years on God's green earth. Instead, by every means at his disposal, from cosmetic surgery to unnecessarily farming out to nursing homes to care of frail, older moms and dads, to exterminating or otherwise ruining the generations coming up behind it, This present generation of Americans is frantically trying to erase the inexorable signs of its own aging. It's a mad commercial stampede designed to separate fools from their money. I actually heard this not long ago on a radio commercial as I was driving somewhere. It was a a radio commercial for a men's hair restoration product a young man's excited radio voice testimony of, and I quote this, these are his words, results as awesome as they are undetectable. Now think that through. (laughs) If the results are so undetectable, I think I'll just hang on to my wallet, thank you. But if, If ours weren't a culture that's in rebellion against God, if we'd instead laid to heart the fifth commandment in its far-reaching implications, we would be a culture that, in the words of Leviticus 19.32, rises up before the gray-headed, honors the aged, and reveres the Lord. And we wouldn't care more about receding hairlines than we do about the lost souls of generations coming up behind us. There's the sense of appropriate honor that might lead Paul to put old men at the head of the list. But another might be this, another reason that Paul starts with old men might be this. Ordinarily, the church draws her elders, her presbyteroi, from her old men. Presbyti and you Titus, you are looking to establish and appoint elders in every city in Crete. That's why I left you there. So look first for the effect that your sound wholesome Bible doctrine has on the old men that you teach. Now of course sound biblical doctrine is is beautiful. It's lovely to see it work in all these other groups too, but they're not the groups from which you are going to draw your elders. It'll be from a pool of mature men, even old men, with a track record of gracious obedience to the will of Christ. It'll be from a pool of men who are so accustomed to this lifestyle in thought, word, and deed that the church can rest secure in their hands. the church can be at peace. Internally, at least, we can be at peace under the care of men like this because they're men who aren't going to be swinging wildly this way and that with every wind of doctrine or every new circumstance that comes along. They're not going to be slaves of their own passions or their own idiosyncrasies. A little persecution or a little adversity isn't going to throw these men off their game because they know it's not a game. These are solid men built and still building by grace upon the rock of Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is in Christ these men become, in a sense, rocks themselves, as Peter did. Rocks to shelter the young to anchor the foolish, to ground in the faith anyone else who can benefit from solid biblical doctrine with a human pulse. Men who have been there before us and in their own generation strived and grieved and failed And learn something from their own failures. So that you, the next generation that comes along. You won't have to repeat those failures. Solid men. Still growing. In the apostolic Christian faith. Solid and still growing. In Christian love. Solid and still growing. In endurance. Whatever the changing weather around them, may bring. These men are to be the pillars of the Christian church, stalwart men for the church in all of her perils. By the same spirit who moved Paul to write of these old, doctrinally trained men of the church, David, a thousand years before, David wrote in the 16th Psalm, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Through sound doctrine poured out from this pulpit and 10,000 others like it across the globe, may God grant the church such majestic ones today and throughout all our tomorrows and give you, the church, the grace to delight in them too. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd of your church, your flock. And we thank you that when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. And that among these gifts are the officers of the church. We thank you for the old men who have gone before us who as young men came across the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ heard it with faith and believed and believing were transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for those old men of our own generation who have taught us the gospel and shown us in their deeds and their words the truth of what is written on the pages of Scripture. We thank you for their example. We thank you that you have chosen to put into the hands of presbyters the care of the, your church, your beloved church. Grant that we would honor them as we ought. Grant that we might grow in grace and wisdom as we age. Each of us, whether male or female, we pray that we would grow into an honorable people. And now, Heavenly Father, we thank you again for these means of grace. We pray that uh, we would have the grace also to Think through these things, to ruminate on them, and to be transformed by them as you renew our mind through the power of Christ Jesus, operative in his spirit. We humbly pray in his name. Amen.